Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. Back with me today at the table, Tim Cockrell. Tim shared a sermon with our church this past Sunday. He was focusing on Exodus chapter 19. And so, Tim, we, we've come this week to what is really a key section, and not only for the Old Testament narrative, but also you know just Scripture in general and for Christians in general. And, you know, of course, the Israelites have traveled they, for three months. They've arrived at uh, the mountain of the Lord, Mount Sinai, and over the coming chapters, and, and I'm counting, now maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm counting about 58 chapters, and most are all of three books, uh, the certainly Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and Numbers uh, into chapter 10, where we read of God's giving the law through Moses, beginning with the next week, uh, of course, our study in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. So, now, I believe the Israelites are here at Sinai for that, and you haven't counted them probably like I have, but 58 chapters on through new numbers, and we see them moving on. Correct. It's a significant amount of time, probably about a year that they're here at Mount Sinai, but certainly theologically, it's a oh seminal passage that defines the covenant between God and his people, and that's why it's such a rich thing for us. And I think many times we as Christians can look at the covenant as, well, that's the old covenant, so we don't need to study that anymore. And let's be honest, reading certain sections of Leviticus, it's hard to see exactly how it applies. But I think hopefully what we'll see as we continue on through Exodus is we'll see that even the principles of the law, even if the practices are different in the New Testament, the principles are still very instructive for us as believers. Good. Well, well, we'll be talking through about that throughout the, the coming minutes, of course. And, and let's just start here. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the matter of typology, uh, things in the Old Testament that are foreshadowing, prefiguring, pointing to the greater reality in Christ. And so uh, this past Sunday, you led us to Hebrews chapter 12. And that, is, of course, the, the yet as known author, uh, unknown author, we'll, uh, we'll maybe find out someday. But the author of that book connects the dots for us between what was going on and you did this sort of comparison mm -hmm. what it was going on at Mount Sinai and what Jesus did for us on Mount Zion first though it might be good for some of our listeners if we just take a minute to define and locate these two very real maybe locate geographically but also locate kind of in the whole scope of of the uh, redemptive history these two very real but also very symbolic places yeah, can you share a little bit more with us about that absolutely so the the Mount Sinai that we read about in scripture we don't know the exact mountain many people will point to a mountain called Jebel Musa that if if you, you go to Egypt, they'll take you up that one and say, this is Mount Sinai. We don't know for certain, but of course, that was where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He had promised, I'm going to deliver my people and bring them back here, and it's there that they will worship. But theologically speaking, Mount Sinai is, is equivalent to the Mosaic Law, that it is an appearance of God that, that elevates and, and highlights his holiness, the disparity between his purity and our depravity and and the the requirement that we have a mediator and a tabernacle and a system of sacrifices in order to be able to approach it and so i think that's what the author of hebrews 12 is highlighting is looking back at mount sinai 
but actually looking then ahead at Mount Zion. So when we read about Mount Zion in the Bible, it's specifically talking about Jerusalem. It's built on Mount Zion. And uh, although you might think of it as a mountain, if you ever go, it's, it's really more of a hill. And honestly, it's more of a low hill with larger hills, including the Mount of Olives surrounding it. And it was there on Mount Zion that uh, Abraham would have taken Isaac, you know, in the region of Moriah to offer him in, in Genesis. It would have been there that David would have purchased the threshing floor of Aruna, where the temple eventually would be established. And then once the temple was built by Solomon, you would have had sacrifices offered over and over there. But ultimately, I think Hebrews 12 is not looking at Mount Zion as the physical city in Jerusalem, but rather the heavenly city, and that's actually what he says in Hebrews 12, uh, that we are anticipating with, with the angels singing and, and the fellowship with God established. And so the, the contrast here is between the old covenant with Moses that highlighted the people's need but could not redeem them uh, by virtue of, of simply sacrifices of bulls and goats, and the new covenant of Christ the better mediator who has brought us into the presence of God by virtue of his grace. And so that gives us this sense of anticipation to be with God rather than a sense of dread, which honestly is what the Israelites experienced. And it's interesting that uh, the physical Mount uh, Sinai, as we believe where it is there in the southern part of the Sinaitic Peninsula, uh, is in Egypt, current day Egypt, mm -hmm. uh, just a little bit more adding to that, uh, that feel of the law uh, Egypt and of course redemption in on, on Mount Zion through Christ for sure well Tim you noted in God's you noted that God's phrase in verse 6 here in chapter 19 you said uh, Israel shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is what uh, Moses was uh, was sharing from God and then you noted a similar language in first Peter chapter 2 verse 9 there in the New Testament where Peter speaks of the church as I'm quoting here a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation and a people for his own possession Obviously, there's a, a distinct linkage in the language of these Old and New Testament passages, but it really doesn't seem that Israel is fulfilling their responsibility that God gave them those uh, several thousands of years ago. Did God fail when he chose Israel? I'm going to go with a no on okay, that Okay, <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. Let me unpack my, my thoughts there for a moment. I think it's helpful to distinguish the purpose of Israel versus the purpose of the church, for instance. In the Old Testament, the purpose of Israel was to be God's distinct set-apart people in the Promised Land, in a geographically central place that, if you learn about the ancient Near East, happened to be the crossroads of the world. That anybody that was traveling from Egypt to Mesopotamia or Mesopotamia over to Europe or, or anywhere in between was going to be intersecting with Israel. And so if I were to kind of summarize the evangelistic plan, if you will, of the Old Testament, it was come and see. Come to this temple and see the sacrifices. Come and see these distinct people who take one day out of seven that they don't work or who don't eat certain foods. But then in the New Testament, God transitions his plan from come and see to go and tell. That, that our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are his ambassadors of reconciliation. And so I think there is this recognition that God's plan and purpose for Israel was, 
was the same and yet different than it is for the church. But as far as Israel's failure, I think we can also say we ourselves fail in this as well. And that's why I'm so thankful that God's plan doesn't depend on our worthiness or our ability or our intellect. But that God has promised that he is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He has also promised that he is going to redeem the people Israel, the, the Abrahamic covenant, and that that is an unconditional covenant as well. And so in spite of our failures and inability, we're going to see God be faithful both to Israel and to his church. And of course, you know, we read about that throughout the the prophets and then on into, you know, Revelation and elsewhere in the New Testament. Get to can you talk a little bit that whole idea of priesthood, uh, and specifically, let's talk about the priesthood in the context of the New Testament church. What Peter is saying here: What is our role then, if we are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood? What is our role right. before God? Well, in in any of the ancient religions, the priests were the ones that were set apart to serve the gods. Like they devoted all of their energy and attention to serving the gods, while other people would be working in various other pursuits. And so the idea that we are a holy nation, a priesthood of all believers, reminds us that God has redeemed us for a purpose that we might be set apart for him and be faithfully serving him. And I think it also reminds us that while in the New Testament, the priests were the only ones that were allowed to go beyond the boundary of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. And the high priest was the only one who could actually enter into God's presence. Because of Jesus, the veil was torn. The way was made so that we could enter God's presence. And so the priesthood of believers not only reminds us of the business that we are to be about, that is serving God in the ways he's called us to, but the manner in which we can approach God in confidence without needing a mediator. And that's honestly one of the reasons why I think people that are involved in, in the Catholic Church right now are missing a key truth of the New Testament, that we no longer have to go confess to a priest, but rather we have direct access because we are all priests before God by virtue of what Christ has done for us. Well, and wouldn't you agree that an improper understanding, you talk about the Catholic Church, and we could talk about any number of, mm -hmm. of other religions outside of Christianity proper, <clears throat> but uh, an improper understanding of this would lead one to say, well, that's the priest's duties to, to serve God. I'll go do whatever I want to do, mm -hmm. and I'll go seek absolution through the priest, but I really don't have to attend to that. Right. It makes it more easy to, to comp compartmentalize. So the priest is the one that does the spiritual things, and, and we do our just kind of day-to-day -day routines. But when we begin to view our work as worship and our relationships as worship and all those types of things, then we take our priesthood hopefully more seriously in terms of how we approach those responsibilities. And being equal opportunity here, don't we also in our what we might call evangelical churches or Protestant churches, don't we often also uh, ascribe those duties to the pastor or what we uh, so often call the clergy mm -hmm. and uh, those sitting in the pews, well, that, that's for them. I'll go do my work and I'll go do my play, whatever that might be, pleasing to God or not, and mm -hmm. uh, seek absolution through my pastor. Yeah, there's certainly that danger. And it's often called the sacred secular dichotomy that mm -hmm. those people that are vocational ministers are the real people that are to do the ministry and that everybody else is there um, to 
to maybe be participants at some level. But I think, you know, certainly Grace and many other churches that we're aware of are, are congregationally governed, you know, that we we want the people to be involved in the, the ministries and day-to-day realities of the church at various levels. And that is founded on this principle of being the priesthood of believers. But what that means is not just that they're the decision makers, but rather that they are literally the hands and feet of Jesus doing the work of the ministry. So what you're saying is get off your get off your rear ends and let's let's get to work. <laughs> if that's what the Holy Spirit's saying, I won't get in the go. way. Okay, very good. Well, I think we we might be able to extrapolate that out. We'll talk about that another time. Uh, Tim, uh, this whole passage it's so rich in its description of the early worship of the new nation and words like consecrate, wash, um, couplets like be ready, set limits, take care. Uh, they dominate this passage from there in verses seven through fifteen. He talked about that. You boiled it down to two points on Sunday, a reverent fear and a personal preparation. And of course, there's a lot here for any worshiper to learn, but but it really seems, it can seem very ritualistic. So what role can or even should ritual have in the worship practices of the New Testament believer? Let's say the New Testament believer right here in Cedarville, Ohio, for example, or wherever you are. Well, I think that's one of the challenges when we come to a passage like Exodus 19 is it is so specific to a specific nation at a specific time for a unique situation that they were going to literally be in the presence of God for the receiving of the Mosaic law. And so even some of the rituals that the passage describes are not still rituals that are are required or expected of us in the New Testament church. But the principle is that we need to be preparing our hearts and our minds to be eliminating distractions, to be recognizing with reverence that we are coming into the presence of God. And so I think any word like ritual is going to have some negative connotations. It's going to feel like you're just going through the motions. I personally prefer a word like habits. You know, we all have habits. Can I know? add discipline? Uh, sure, absolutely. But you know, discipline even has a, can have a negative connotation in terms of uh, you know even like disciplinary action. But if you think about, we all have certain habits. You know, hopefully most of the people that are listening have a habit of brushing their teeth, taking a shower, washing their clothes, you know, eating meals, all those types of things. But those habits hopefully don't feel so constraining and so burdensome but rather they have been recognized as good and healthy rhythms that allow us to encapsulate our priorities into our daily activities. And that's the way I would view this idea of personal preparation, that if our wanting to know what God desires from us is important to us, then reading his word will by nature be a priority. If we recognize the limits of our own ability and understanding, then prayer is going to be a regular rhythm as we communicate with God and as we hear from him through scripture. And so I think those are the types of patterns, if you will, that we need to develop as habits of grace, of a recognition that we need to hear from God and that we need to be rightly oriented to him in that process. So that's going to look different for different people. And the danger of ever going into specifics is one person's like, well, that sounds too legalistic, or that might work for you, but it doesn't work for me. And so I think there's certain principles that point us to patterns 
that might look different in each person's life, but should it be the same general principle? Well, and the you speak to that. Uh, I can think back to when I was first starting to uh, desire to follow Christ, and Christ was pulling me in that direction and I just uh, I was getting up and spending boy I spent a half hour every morning 10 minutes in reading 10 minutes in prayer and 10 minutes in uh, scripture memory mm-hmm. I remember that very well mm-hmm. and I was so ordered <clears throat> and Tim <clears throat> excuse me it got to a point where and I was doing that for good reasons mm-hmm. and I was learning from it mm-hmm. but it got to a point that it became it just it was all about that. It was not about getting to know God. It was about getting to know more knowledge and more information. And so, yeah, I can speak to the point where it it became almost a slave to me, or I became almost mm-hmm. a slave to my discipline. Um, <clears throat> talk to the one who is just in a you know in a in a, a dynamic where they they're doing all the right things. And I've got this down now. Okay, I've got it down. I got the Christian life down. If I go to church on Sunday and I do this on Monday and Tuesday and on through Saturday till I'm ready for church again, that's not what God's talking about, really, is it? It's really the heart, and that's what we'll. If we read later on or throughout the the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find that. Do we not find that? That's exactly what God is not saying. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's always the, the challenge here. If you want to use the phrase, you know, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, we don't want to um, to follow a legalistic path, but we don't also just want to say, well, we'll do whatever you feel like. Yeah. I think Jesus points us to this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, you know, you're, you're giving but you're not giving out of a right heart, but you still think it honors God. You're fasting, but you're doing so in a way that calls attention to yourself rather than making it actually a personal discipline between you and the Lord. And so, so much of it has to do with our motive. You know, if I'm wanting to read the Bible or pray or study scripture, because then I feel like God will love me more or my life will go better or my wife will be healed or or whatever it might be, then we're actually in danger of approaching God just as the the pagans would approach an idol that as long as we go through the right ritual we channel the power of the gods toward our purposes but if we're coming to god to say you are holy and i am not i am desperately dependent on your grace and i'm preaching the gospel myself every day then there is a freedom that's there that doesn't have to follow this regimented um, regulation but there also is a, a desperation that says but I need this. I need spiritual food. I, I need prayer as if it were spiritual air. And, and that then becomes the driving motivation, not some type of guilt or shame-based approach to these disciplines. And lest anybody would think that a Tim Cockrell, and certainly Bart Sheridan, has it has this all taken care of and all down. I, I would add, too, that I find in my life it's a constant correction. It's a constant tension. And mm-hmm. I, I think back, to, I can remember this very well. When I was sitting in the back seat as a young boy watching my father or watching my mother drive, mm. it sticks in my mind. The steering wheel was always going left or right. Mm-hmm. You ever notice when you're driving, you're just sort of just little corrections all mm-hmm. the time. And I think that's, that's the way it's been in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you can say the same thing. I sometimes get too focused on the ritual. I sometimes get so focused on the freedom Mm -hmm. 
that I put away the habits, mm-hmm. the ritual, the discipline, whatever we mm-hmm. want to call it, and I get to leaning too much on my own strength mm-hmm. and just uh, or not enough on God's strength. And it's just a constant tension where I just need to be, you know, Paul says in another place in Colossians, be sober, be vigilant, or I'm sorry, in First Peter, uh, Peter says this, be sober and be vigilant. Yeah, he's talking about Satan attacking mm-hmm. there, but there is a danger, isn't there, of just not being on it and not recognizing the traps that we can fall to on either side of that tension. Yep, absolutely. And I think we all have tendencies, whether it's because of our personalities or our spiritual backgrounds, to err on one side or the other. And sometimes maybe we grew up in a more legalistic home and then we swing more to, uh, hey, it's all about freedom. I don't need to worry about doing some of those things. And that's one of the, the functions of the body of Christ to help kind of encouraged to sharpen to remind us it certainly is the role of the holy spirit and our spouse has an important part to play there too because many times god brings us to someone who's very different than us who helps to to shape and encourage us in ways that we need we're both smiling at each other as we listen as you say that (laughs) because we both understand and i i would say that the the test of whether or not you need that kind of uh just to keep watching is if you're breathing Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all need that. Tim, in, in our adult Bible fellowship this past Sunday, the one that Sandy and I lead, we, we talked about God's instructions for worship preparation as they pertain both to our corporate and to our personal worship practices. And you did share a little, but but would you share some of maybe your own personal experiences, if you wouldn't mind getting a little uh, transparent here, about some of the practices that you personally have employed as you prepare to worship personally, mm-hmm. coming to church on Sunday or another larger gathering, maybe on Wednesday or whenever it might be for you, what are some of the things that you do to prepare for those times? Hmm. Well, just as we were saying, it has has shifted and fluctuated over the years, sometimes being more structured and sometimes less so. I think one common theme, especially because many times I have some role in the the worship service, whether that's preaching or, or helping uh, lead some aspect of it is just a, a prayer of, of dependence and confession. You know, anytime that we are are standing up to lead people in worship, whether that's through teaching them God's word or, or interceding for them in prayer, there is the danger of beginning to think it's about me. It's about the the sermon that I've prepared or the illustration that I want to share or the the, the even eloquent prayer that I have in my mind that I want to to speak. And, and that just orients me to say, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. I, I need his Holy Spirit to to work, to speak to me, to speak to the people that, that I'm going to be serving. And along with that is a prayer of confession, a prayer of confession of my tendency toward self-sufficiency and pride, a prayer of confession of my, my anxiousness or fear, whatever it might be. Um, apply directly to in that particular moment you know another spiritual discipline if you want to call it for me that's really helpful is just music you know certainly we do that corporately when we come on sunday morning but there are so many rich songs that have such power to reinforce truths in our minds so whether that's playing them in our our home or, or singing them you know especially when i would mow the lawn i'd be out there singing away i feel bad for my neighbors sometimes um <laughs> But, you know, all of those are different ways that maybe go outside of the box of just, you know, silent prayer uh, that 
reinforce truth, prepare our hearts, cultivate that sense of dependence. And ultimately, there are certain rhythms too, you know, whether it's Saturday night, trying to carve that out. And some of that has to do with usually on Saturday night, I'm kind of reviewing and reinforcing the spiritual truths that I'm going to be preaching the next day, you know, getting a good night's rest whenever I can on, on Saturday night, all go into that process of preparation for me. And I can speak personally, it's very easy for me to, uh, if I'm preparing for a adult Bible fellowship lesson or whatever, it's very easy for me to rely on that instead of true personal preparation to to pre- my public or preparation for public leading mm-hmm. can often take the place of what really needs to be a personal before God on my knees, uh, whether literally or figuratively mm-hmm. before God, um, and I can't. I can't let that happen too much. I've got I know I personally need to focus on spending that personal time with God instead of just letting that preparation be serve that purpose because it, it it's a different preparation than mm-hmm. the personal preparation before God is. Right. You know, there's a danger for any of us that have leadership responsibilities in any form in the church of I'd call it the professionalization of our Christian walk. Now that being said, Many times, the things that God are, are pressing into my spirit are the very things that I'm preparing to teach, but that as I'm getting ready to teach them, there is this posture that says, I need to hear this first. Not I'm studying to say, oh, you know who needs to hear this in the audience, but no, I need to hear this. I need to apply this. And that then my teaching or my leadership or whatever is the overflow of what God is teaching me through some of those things. Good, good. Well, Tim, there's also a real tension that seems to be apparent throughout Scripture as we see God, especially much of the Old Testament, uh, I think we can say, he's the all-powerful, the awesome, awful is a word that has been used in past generations. We don't use that as much about God these days, Uh, but he is the I am there in chapters 3 and 19 and, and throughout so much of the Old Testament. And then... On the other hand, he's also the more approachable, Abba, Father, in passages like Mark 14, Romans 8. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This doesn't seem like the same God. So can you talk more about how we can navigate this? these two different, I don't want to say faces, but two different descriptions of who God is? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the reason why it's so important for us to study passages like Exodus 19 is because we are saturated in the grace passages of the New Testament. Beautiful, biblically rich passages. And it's easy to stay there because it feels good. Exactly. That we like this idea of, yes, God is our, our intimate Father that we have the privilege of approaching, that He, his Spirit speaks to our spirit even as we are praying. And all those things are true. But many times, I think we can cheapen the cross by minimizing God's holiness and excusing our sin. In the same way, I think we can miss the depth of the privilege of the intimacy that we have by losing our vision of the transcendence of God, that we bring him down and imagine him to be a man like us, and therefore because he uses so many anthropomorphisms or or language that gives him human characteristics, that we then 
just think God's a person just like us. Domesticated. Exactly. And, and so when we read passages like this, there is a clear disparity that God is not like us. We are to be set apart. We are unworthy to approach him in and of ourselves. But that is then what makes the gospel so remarkable, is that God who is blazing in his holiness, who every person who has ever seen even a glimpse of his glory end up on their face in wonder and in, in humility, it is that same God that lifts our head and welcomes us into his family by virtue of what Christ has done. And so I think if we don't preserve that transcendence of God, we don't fully appreciate the, the nearness of God that is made available to us in Christ. I don't know about you. I had a father who was very loving, but I also knew how far I could go. And he was very clear with how far I could go, uh, especially when I was younger and he was developing that you know understanding of what his role was. Um, so often I've heard this said from psychologists, and it, it makes total sense. Our understanding of who God is is often directed and, and certainly molded by our relationship with our fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, speak to the one who had a father who was just ultra authoritarian and you will do what I say because I said it and it will just be that way and there was not much grace, not much love. Or on the other side, there was a father who was very oh, forgiving and just, and I don't want to say forgiving, very just do whatever you want to do and I'm going to love you no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, speak to that one who has who struggles with one side or the other of one facet or the other maybe we Mm -hmm. can say because they're both facets of the same diamond here Mm -hmm. uh god uh talk to that one who just struggles with that because they've never seen this modeled really well Mm -hmm. yeah it is easy for us to go off the road on one side or the other and i think scripture gives us some good guardrails that help us avoid that i think we even see that both of these truths in exodus 19 you know, as God prepares mm-hmm. to come, he, he tells Moses, I'm going to come down. But then what he speaks is actually very tenderly and mm-hmm. tender and personal, saying, you know, Israel is my treasured possession. Remind them of how I, I've rescued them with eagle's wings. And, and yet, there is also the responsibility to obey him and to live as a holy priesthood or a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And then he appears, and it's all shock and awe. And I think we just have to recognize, first of all, what our tendencies are. That that if we grew up in a very authoritarian home, we are going to constantly struggle with this feeling of not just I am unworthy, but I am worthless, unless I perform in a particular way. It is those thoughts that need to be oriented to the truth that God had already saved Israel. He said, you are already my precious possession. Not if you check all these boxes, then you'll be loved. No, you are already loved with an everlasting love. But if someone recognizes, hey, I actually grew up in a much more permissive home in which it was all love and grace and no law, then I think you need to recognize that even the New Testament warns on several occasions, you know, have, has God saved us so that grace may abound? Well, yes, but not because then you are living however you want to. 
it's because you're, the grace is giving you the power to obey. And I think, again, this is where biblical community comes into play, where you have people that know you well enough and love you enough to tell you the truth, to warn you when you're drifting on one side or the other, and to model for you a different pattern, not perfectly, but that helps us to have a, a more full rounded view of who God is and how we are to respond to him. And it's not a bad idea either to adopt a father figure or mother figure. Perhaps your father or mother is gone or they're not mm-hmm. near you. Or maybe you just need to kind of round out your experience. Uh, you love your father mm-hmm. or mother, but you just need more. We all need more uh, input into our lives uh, than just our parents can provide or those around us. It's not bad to do that. And, and I think, Tim, as you're talking there, it also strikes me that there are mothers and fathers of young children adolescent, teenage, or even adult children or grandparents out there who say, I struggle with this because I want to be the buddy. I want to be the friend. Uh, There are people who struggle and uh, adopting and understanding that my role as a parent or a grandparent, uh, especially a parent, let's not talk about grandparents. That's easy, just love. But with parents, we need to be, uh, we need to represent God before our children. And we need to be able to be uh, more help them be more disciplined. Maybe call them out mm-hmm. uh, instead of just allowing them being so permissive. There's a tension there too, isn't there? There is, and I would even suggest to you. I think we can see a generational shift in that. You know, I think about you know my grandfather's generation. Let's just say, you know, in which if there was a tendency, it was parental distance, discipline, fear was was a regular part of the the respectful relationship between parents and their children but love intimacy tenderness were largely lacking and i think that what we now see in current generation is that the pendulum has swung and that certain children that maybe grew up without that and have recognized that the need for that want to lavish their children in in praise and affirmation and love and tenderness but as a result, they've, they've lost their moorings in the, the responsibility they have. You know, Scripture tells us to raise our children in the, the fear and admonition of the Lord. I think that King James would say it. That I know that fear and admonition from my father, yes. Exactly. And, and so I think that's where we want to just recognize our responsibility as parents, not just to be liked, because if that's your goal, not only will you fail uh, in your goal to be liked, but you will fail in your responsibility to raise your children in their need for the gospel and their recognition of God's grace. And isn't that what the law is doing? The law is proving to the Israelites. We'll talk about that. I'm sure we'll be starting that here next week in Exodus chapter 20, holding that mirror up to them and saying, you don't measure up. Yes. You need the Savior, mm-hmm. and that's pointing to Christ all the way along. Well, Tim, you mentioned that God's revelation of the law was not to be burdensome, but was to show the people how far they fell short so that they would fall in submission before God. I think I got that pretty well correct from my notes. But uh, we studied James' letter within the past couple of years here at Grace, and James really gets at what you seem to be saying here. He, he points out that faith in God and, and the indwelling of God's Spirit in us has to be first before the works, and that's the only way that we're going to be able to have any hope of keeping God's law. Uh, The law that God is talking about is devotion to him and and certainly doing the right things, but it's the only way through faith in him and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
course, even then we fail, we know, because as you know, we, we get in the way. Can you comment on that just a little bit, just a little bit of doctrine there from James? Absolutely. Well, and the law was never meant to justify us. Correct. And so any approach to the law that says, hey, this is how I'm going to have right standing before God is already failed before you've begun. But if we recognize that the law is to point us to, as you've already said, our need for a savior, to expose in the mirror the depravity of our hearts, then it compels us and drives us to be dependent on God, to confess our sins, and to to be redeemed by him. And then, and only then, once we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, or as Jeremiah would say, we, we exchange our heart of stone for a heart of flesh, we now have the ability and the proper motivation to respond rightly to God in obedience. Now, we don't do that perfectly, of course, because we're still in process. But by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit, as we look at the principles of the law, the the moral will of God, if we can say it that way, we long to do those things because we love him. That's what Jesus says in John 13. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so it's not just a matter of external conformity, but rather internal motivation that is transformed as a result of Christ. Tim, we're, we're here near the end. We've got a number of things coming up here in the next month. Uh, I believe you said before we went to the microphones here this morning that we are going to be in Exodus chapter 20 for the next three weeks. Can you kind of lead us through what we're going to be doing? Absolutely. So, of course, Exodus 19 is just the preparation for the giving of the law as God comes down and speaks directly to his people. And that begins with the ten words or the ten commandments as we usually know them in Exodus chapter 20. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments and trying to understand what is the the function and purpose of the law, specifically the Old Testament law, how should we as Christians view that, and then how do we take these principles of God's moral will that he's communicated and put them into practice in our contemporary Christian lives. And so there's some of those that, that feel much easier for us, you know, in terms of honor father and mother, or don't covet. We can see some clear parallels. Some of the things like, how do we keep the Sabbath holy today? Or what about all this related to graven images? How does that apply to us? We're going to try to unpack that and help us to understand what God is calling us to do, both negatively to avoid, but also positively in order to, to establish certain patterns in our our lives. Great, great. Well, thanks for your work, and we're grateful that you're here today. Looking forward to seeing you on Sunday and uh, studying the Word together with you. Thanks. Thank you. Well, Tim Cockrell has been our guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Exodus chapter 19, and you can access Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.